Open your Bibles to Matthew 16, as we come to the final section of this uh, chapter. If you are a, a person that looks closely at businesses, you are familiar with what is known as a profit loss statement. That is a financial statement that summarizes all the company's revenues and expenses and the resulting net profit or net loss from all of that activity that may have taken place over a given period of time. That's um, generally how people uh, diagnose the health of a company. Is it moving in the right direction? Is it actually accomplishing its purposes? You can have a lot of activity within a business. You can have a lot of revenue, you might say. You can have a lot of sales and all those other things. But at the end of the day, if it's not profiting, then in the purpose of the business you're not going to succeed. Well, today we come to a passage where Jesus is challenging us to think about profits and losses, not in terms of businesses, but in terms of your life. He speaks about profit and he speaks about loss in the period of your life here on earth. And he challenges you to think about all the transactions, all the activity that's going on on in your life and what exactly it's going to cost you, what kind of profit or what kind of loss it might lead you to, just as a a business might carefully weigh the cost and the benefits to make decisions that hopefully will maximize their, their profit. He wants you to carefully consider the commitments and decisions in your life because they have consequences. And just as with a business, you can't ignore costs forever. You can bury them in uh, certain ways. You can mask them for a period of time. But if you don't address them, they will eventually destroy you. Well, Jesus is communicating the same thing about your life. This all comes, by the way, in Matthew 16, in a context of, you might say, the disciples calculating their benefits, calculating their, their, their profits, As Jesus has been talking to them about the kingdom and they have been having discussion about his identity as the Messiah, they've been setting expectations on what that might look like in the end for them personally, how they might reign together with Christ, how whenever he brings in his kingdom and all of its glories and all of its spectacular freedoms and uh, and, uh, 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 prosperity and all those other things, how by their association with Christ, they might personally sit with him on the throne, how they might personally benefit by their attachment to him. In that way, they were no different than so many today who think about Christianity or they think about church. They think about uh, a decision for Christ in those very, uh, very personal and, and we might say very self-centered ways. They think about whether or not this practical step of deciding to follow Christ is going to benefit them and how it's going to benefit them. And so all of this erupts, you might say, out of a collision of their misplaced expectations and the true reality of what following the Messiah might mean on the part of his disciples And all of this sort of collision provides Jesus with an opportunity to talk to them, not only about his own pathway of the cross, which he introduced in verse 21 through 23, 
but about the pathway that might be in front of them if they follow him. A pathway of faithfulness, a pathway of discipleship, but a pathway that might be unexpected for them as it is for so many others. And the paradox that he presents to them is that if anyone wants to find life, they have to be willing to first give it up. The person looking, you might say, for the greatest prophet has to be willing to go through, first of all, the greatest loss. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 24. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each one according to what he's done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here today who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Jesus begins sort of with an assumption, maybe in a context of what they're already talking about. The assumption is that everyone is calculating their personal benefit, their personal profit in the decisions that they're making. And this was... uh, even a part of the disciples' expectation as they followed him. This is why Peter had such an objection to Jesus whenever he talked about going to Jerusalem and suffering loss, suffering ridicule, suffering death. They had assumed that the Messiah that they were following was the Messiah of their dreams, that he would usher in this unprecedented kingdom of victory and freedom and prosperity, as I said, and that they would be in line to reap the benefits. In a sense, they were operating under that same delusion that so many people operate under, the delusion that everything that they do, including their religious involvement, revolves around their personal pursuits, and whatever kind of help that Jesus can give them is in line with what they are already imagining. But the key message Jesus has here is that whatever benefit, whatever life, whatever ultimate profit you might be seeking in this life is not going to be found where you would expect it. It'll be found in a pathway that might not be where you're looking It wouldn't be in line with expectations that you already had. None of those things that you're currently pursuing ultimately have the capacity to give you the life and the hope and the profit and the salvation that you're dreaming of. In fact, the secret to finding all those things, the secret to finding life and the secret to finding fulfillment, the secret to saving yourself is actually renouncing all that stuff. To ultimately renounce your trust in yourself. The secret to finding life and salvation is to realize, first of all, that you don't know where to find it. That you need help. That you need direction. So this is the key, Jesus says, of following him. 
The pathway that he's going to take you down is going to be an unexpected pathway. It's going to have unexpected avenues through which you're going to have to walk, but it's through those unexpected avenues that you're going to find true life. And to that end, he lays out a number of what those unexpected avenues really entail, the unexpected avenues of finding true life that you have to walk down. The first one you can notice in verse 24 is just personal denial. Personal denial. Jesus says if you come after him, you have to deny yourself. Uh, That's the idea of completely disowning something, completely disassociating with something. It's the same word Jesus used previously whenever he talked about people denying him And he says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. This is someone who would not want to be associated with Christ. Someone who would not want to be associated with his people or with his church. He says, if that's your your approach, then you yourself should be prepared to be denied by me before the throne. So he's speaking here of utterly disassociating or abandoning like like an old, uh, you know, garbage bag that you set outside because of its stench you don't want it anywhere near you you set it outside for the trash collectors hopefully never to be seen again that's the idea you just completely uh, set yourself apart from whatever it is that you are denying and in this case Jesus says the thing that you're denying is yourself you're denying yourself in the terms of your personal wisdom and your personal insights and your opinions and your views and your pursuits and all of those other things. To deny oneself is to renounce that you have anything worthy to commend yourself to God or to achieve really what you're even after. You are, in, the, in, in terms of uh, uh, scriptures uh, or in terms of what Jesus has already taught back in the Sermon on the Mount, you are poor in spirit. To recognize that you are, in spite of all of your previous claims, you are destitute, bankrupt, and ruined. You come then, as you follow Christ, having nothing to offer. No virtue, no goodness, no knowledge, no wisdom, no counsel, nothing. In that sense, you come... Denying yourself and giving up all of your other pathways, all of your other avenues, but no longer seeing them as a loss because you've already realized that they're nothing to begin with, that they were an empty and vacuous pursuit. They were a mirage. The person who comes to Christ comes renouncing all those things, not begrudgingly, but gladly because they have tethered themselves, they realize, to what was a vain hope. In other words, you come with a new understanding of yourself, a new understanding of your old life, a new understanding of the sin that you once pursued, a new understanding of all those, all of those sort of debauched and, and uh, vain and empty and rebellious ways, those things that you once cling to, now you can't help but want to get them off. You were clothing yourself, in other words, with garments that were drenched in filth and dung, thinking that you were clothed in royal robes, but now you have smelled them for what they are, and you could no more quickly 
get them off of your body than anything else. That's just your whole pursuit now. This is the denial. It's an awakening, as a matter of fact. A realization, finally, of the deceitful and destructive pathways that you were on. Paul talks about this. He says, in regard to your old self in Ephesians 4.22, that former manner of life which is corrupt through deceitful desires, you lay it aside. So Jesus is saying you can't come to Him wanting to be dressed in all of that filth. You can't come to Him clinging to all of those old pursuits. You can't come to Him thinking that you still have the answers. You can't come to Him thinking that somehow you are rich in spirit. You come knowing that you're poor, that your natural and sinful and unredeemed self has been corrupted and has been deceiving you all along. And so you renounce all that stuff. You renounce it even as you cling to Christ. You declare a distrust of yourself because yourself has only brought you your miseries. A.W. Pink says, Growth in grace is growth downward. It's the forming of a lower estimate of yourself. The deepening realization of your nothingness. The heartfelt recognition that you're not worthy of the least of God's mercies. So Jesus is saying, this is, this, is while, this, is the, this is the way, this is the avenue that you have to walk down if you want to find life. If you want to really profit, if you want to really benefit, it doesn't involve holding on to your old life and adding a little bit of Jesus. It involves a fundamental and decisive break with the old self, a complete renunciation with all of its corrupt desires of all of that old life, the abandonment of ungodly thinking, of ungodly believing, which in turn means ungodly living. And at the core of all that deceitful and corrupt thinking is the making yourself the primary concern of your life. So you have to renounce yourself. You're like Paul who says to the Philippians that those who are in Christ Jesus are those who glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. You don't trust yourself, bottom line. You've proven over and over again that you are not trustworthy, that your opinions are wrong, that your opinions are corrupt, and that your opinions are empty. So, he says, this is the pathway of anyone, really everyone, who wants to follow him. The pathway of anyone who wants to find life. No one is going to find life who doesn't find it this way. No one is going to find life who doesn't come to this crisis point. The person who's not willing to renounce his own desires and his own interest and his own wisdom, the person who's not willing to leave all of that behind will never become a true disciple of Christ and will never find life and salvation. Now, Jesus expands on this in verse 24 with a, another unexpected avenue that we could call personal rejection. When he, when he says that you must take up your cross, this is what he's getting at. It was the image that would have been familiar to his disciples. He uses this 
uh, image to drive home the practical reality of this self-denial. Because crucifixion in those days was not only a death sentence, it was a sentence to public humiliation. This cross that Jesus mentioned would have been uh, visible in a number of ways. Every year in the Roman Empire, there were hundreds, sometimes thousands of crucifixions, and they were always done in the most public fashion, usually along on the most public thoroughfares where they could maximize the visibility of this. When a person was crucified, they were typically beaten, mangled in their body to begin with. And then they were forced to carry the horizontal beam, literally the instrument of their death, through the streets. As people all along the way would mock and jeer at them, ridicule and insult them, it maximized the public shame. Of their condemnation. This is what it means to take up, or you could translate that carry. He's not talking about just being pinned to a cross. He's talking about the particularly the public humiliation of carrying this instrument of your death all throughout your life. You're carrying on your back that thing that's going to bring you this kind of ridicule, this kind of insult, this kind of shame. This is what the Romans did. They intentionally prolonged and intensified the suffering of a person and then put all of it, the indignity of all of it, on public display for everyone to see. Jesus is saying this is, this is the pathway. This is what you have to do. This is what self-denial looks like in practical terms. It's a willingness to endure rejection. It's a willingness to endure, endure ridicule. It's a willingness to endure insults and shame of those who imagine that your following Jesus is absurd. That the way uh, of your life, having committed yourself to Christ, is a way of stupidity. It's, it's a reflection of the dullness of your mind, the ineptitude of your judgment, the silliness and the slowness and the backwardness of your thinking. That's the, that's the assessment of those who see you following Christ. And this public mockery that comes as you take up your cross and follow Christ as you parade your allegiance to Him. Jesus says, this is what you have to be willing to do. Why would anyone do that? I mean, who in the world would sign up for that kind of spectacle? Well, the people who do are the people who realize that there are no other alternatives. There are no other alternatives. They've tried the others. They've experimented, they lived in a life of sin, they did all those things, and they've come to realize that that in itself is a dead end. And so now, having realized there's only one pathway to life, they'll do whatever it takes to find that life. So Jesus is saying, this is the unexpected avenue you have to walk if you want to find salvation, if you want to find life. You have to renounce the old life, you have to renounce all your old associations, all of your old views. All of that, even as it brings ridicule, I read earlier from 1 Peter 4, where Peter says, Since Christ therefore has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time 
no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what unbelievers want to do, living in sensuality, living in passions and drunkenness, living in orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And with respect to this, Peter says, they're surprised when you don't want to join them in the flood of debauchery and they malign you. So this is the kind of mockery, this is the kind of ridicule that this is going to bring. And no one, no one is sugarcoating any of that. Jesus doesn't have any illusion that this pathway that's going to lead you to life is going to lead you down a, a, a pathway of ease. You're not going to find yourself sort of basking securely in the sun, soaking in nothing but day after day after day of praise and adoration and blessing. That's not what you're going to find. What you're going to find is that people are going to malign you. You're going to be associated with those that everyone considers to be not only stupid, but perhaps slow and maybe even cruel. But to follow Jesus is a willingness to do all that because, as I said, this is the only way. It leads to life. And you take the shame associated with it because you come to know that all the other pathways are vain. There's another unexpected pathway that Jesus talks about here, and that's personal surrender. He says, You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you do what? You follow him, which is basically a statement of obedience. It's the end result of all this self denial and all this taking up of the cross. It's a life that's emptied of self and given to God. Romans 6 describes it this way. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died has been set free. Excuse me, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. And now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So this is what Paul is telling us happens in our life. We no longer consider ourselves as alive to ourselves. We no longer consider ourselves as having dominion over ourselves, but we are now living our life to God. That means that we put our members, as he says there in Romans 6, we put all of our members in his hands as his instruments. We surrender, in other words, to do his will. Our eyes no longer in service to sin and our own ambitions, our, our minds no longer in service to sin and our own reasoning and sinful thinking, our hands no longer in service to sin, but rather in service to the will of God, our lips and our words no longer speaking what is contrary to His truth, our hearts and our affections no longer consumed with our own glory, but doing everything we can to glorify Him, our money our resources, our time, all of those things now given to serve Him. Everything now in your life is lived for Him. It's lived by faith, trusting in His truth, trusting in His Word. Because now you understand this is the way of life. You follow Him even to the point of loss. 
which is the, really the fourth avenue of expectation, or, or unexpected avenue, I should say, which brings you life. Jesus speaks about it in verse 25 and 26. He presents a warning to get his point across. For, for whoever would save his life will lose it. In other words, you, 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 you can actually lose your life in trying to save it. You can lose your life in trying to save it. When I was a, a lifeguard for many years as a young, young man, we were taught when someone was uh, drowning out at sea, as you approached them, you approached them feet first. You would swim out to them and you would bring yourself upright and you would put your feet out in front of you because there's a tendency of a person who is drowning and flailing and reaching for whatever they can reach for that they would actually wrap you up in their chaos and bring you down and bring you under. In other words, in all of their efforts to save themselves, they might actually wind up destroying themselves and the worst person who's coming to save them. And so you always put your feet out so that you can push them away if, uh, if you're beginning to get entangled. This is the way people are in sin. They're flailing, they're reaching, they're doing everything they can. They think that their efforts are going to save them, but they might uh, be so blind, they are so blind that they don't realize that they're actually, everything they're reaching for, they're just dragging down with them in their own corrupt nature, in their own corrupt thinking. You're wanting to save your life, but you're losing it. You're trying to rescue your dreams. You're trying to rescue your heart. You're trying to rescue your hope. You're trying to rescue your emotions. But you're doing it with all of your own solutions, all of your own values, all of your own goodness, all of your own hard work. And it's coming up empty again and again and again. Jesus calls you then to recognize the reality staring you in the face. That your sin has done nothing so far, but destroy your life. That's all it's done. And this is what the, uh, every believer, this is the point they come to. If you don't come to that point, then you don't know how to come to Christ. You'll never follow Him because you're still following yourself. This is fundamental to belief that the path that you were following before you followed Christ is the path of destruction. And so everyone who comes to Christ is willing to lose that old life, to abandon that wisdom that they used to follow, to let go of that sin that they were so eager to pursue. Their own rule and their own direction that was over their life, they leave it all behind. And so if you wish to control your life, Jesus says, if you want to stay at the helm... If you refuse to submit to the only pathway that's going to lead you to life, you're going to ultimately lose. You're going to ultimately be crushed. But if you give up your life, you will find true life. He says, because whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the paradox of trust. The paradox of faith. That you're willing to renounce all this old life. You're willing to place your trust in Christ because you know that everything you've tried so far is empty and you've come to realize that He is the only one who has the pathway of life. Now, the natural reaction 
when a person hears this, is to just think about all the things they have to give up. To just imagine all the parties and all the friends and all the laughter and all the stuff that they have imagined in their heart was the end goal of their life. To, to, to imagine just what it's like to give up all of those things. You might think that in surrendering all of those things that you are, you are at a severe disadvantage, but the opposite is true. Jesus drives that home in verse 26. For what will it profit a man? What will it profit you? If you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul, or what will a profit a man in? Excuse me. What will a man give in return for his soul? So, if you want to evaluate this thing, really, if you want to really kind of assess where you are, what are the good of all your pursuits if, in the end, you lose everything? If, in the end, you lose your own soul. What good is it doing you if it all gets wiped out in the end? This is a, I remember reading this when I was a 17-year-old boy. I was pursuing all the world. I was seeking out my own way. I was having on the outside some moderate success. Had some success in sports. I had some success in education. I had some opportunities in front of me, but I knew that every time I reached for something, it was a mirage. That every time I dreamt of something and how wonderful it will be when it, when it actually became reality, it was as empty as the last thing. And I stumbled on this verse because someone had challenged me to read the scripture as an unbeliever and I stumbled on this verse and I began to ponder a lifetime of that. A lifetime of of seeking one thing after another, after another, and every time, every one of them coming up as empty as the last one. And spending however many years I might have, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, in that kind of vanity, and at the very end, having my entire life, like a vapor, disappear. And I pondered this. What, what is the profit of that? If I do all this stuff, even if I gain the whole world, but I lose my own soul. And the Lord began to change my heart at that point. It's tough. It's, tough. it's difficult for some people to think in terms of eternity. All they can really think about is the immediate future, what they have next week and what they have next year and what they're looking for in the next season of life. But you could reduce this down, I, I would think, to simpler terms if you could be the emperor of the world for a day. For one day, have everything that you dreamed, dreamed of, everything that you own, do whatever you imagined possible that you wanted to do. You could experience everything you want to experience. You could do it all, but only for one day because the next day you would lose your life. Would you take that exchange? Well, of course not. You'd be foolish. You'd be foolish to do that. The only way you could possibly even enjoy that day is to forget what's happening in the morning. The only way you could ever possibly enjoy all the things that you're hoping to enjoy is to ignore the inevitable, the impending loss that awaits you. Because if you acknowledge, even in the smallest way, that death is your fate the following morning, you couldn't really enjoy any of it. But 
If you're willing to acknowledge the inevitable, Jesus is saying there's a pathway to enjoy not only today, but every day and life forever. And any sensible and wise person would see that exchange. And they would realize it's a small price to pay for all that you receive in return. I mean, even if it meant, instead of being an emperor for a day, even if it meant being a prisoner for a day or a slave for a day or whatever kind of ridicule and suffering you might have to go through, you'd make that exchange. Because you understand that you can't stop the inevitable. Well, Jesus is calling on you to do just that kind of evaluation. And he's warning you that the only possible hope you might have in, uh, in, in all of this is to take stock of that inevitability, to no longer try to ignore the reality that you are going to lose it all one day. And what a sad thing to lose your soul in that final judgment. That's the warning he gives in verse 27. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father and He will repay each person according to what He has done. That's the day of accountability. When all the facade that you have put on for all of your friends and even for yourself, when all that stuff is finally stripped away and you'll suffer the loss not only of everything that you've been clinging to in this life, but you'll suffer the loss of your soul. It's foolish to think that you could guard and keep all of your sinful pursuits forever, that you, can, that you could hold on to them and be satisfied them by them now and even for eternity. But Jesus is giving you this reminder. You can renounce that. You can deny that. You can crucify that old life. Or you can go with all of those things you're clinging to, to God's judgment at His return. This is why Jesus gives this warning. This is why He urges you to realize that the end of the pathway you're on, if you are on a pathway of sin, the end of all that stuff is not what you're hoping. It's not leading where you want it to lead. And there's a warning for you to realize that now. To realize that the life that you're seeking, it's going it's to take you down unexpected pathways if you want to really find it. But there's no other way to salvation. There's no other way to life. Christ promises that those who follow Him, He will raise them up on the last day. Father, we're, we're burdened by those who are around us who are on this pathway of destruction. I pray that you would help us, give us the kind of insight that we need so that we can make known to them the emptiness and the vanity. But Lord, it's ultimately not us that can do that. It is you. We pray that you would open up blind eyes, that you would soften hardened hearts, 
that you would prick consciences that have been seared against you. That you would have mercy on the souls of those who are trapped, thinking that they are seeking and finding life when really they are finding nothing but death and destruction. Lord, have mercy. Open those eyes so that finally those who are lost may be found. Those who are dying may live. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.